0: Welcome everybody, so glad that you're here. Uh, For those of you guys watching online, we're so glad that you're here as well. We are in part 10, 10, 10 of our series. The series is called The Worst Sermon Ever. Last week, uh, we had a family visiting from out of town and they had a a little girl with them and her dad was telling me after the sermon, she looked at her dad and said, Dad, that wasn't the worst sermon ever. And I was like, thank you. So I thought maybe I need to explain this title because you walk in, if this is your first time here, you're like, what are we even talking about? Um, This series we've been going off the last 10 weeks is called The Worst Sermon Ever because we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes is essentially a sermon that this man that many people believe to be Solomon, it could be someone else, but he's called The Teacher, is giving and he's sharing his knowledge and, and, and wisdom with people. And I call it the worst sermon ever because it's not encouraging, it's not inspiring, it's not motivating. If I preach that sermon, something like that, you'd be concerned about my health, you'd be concerned about me, you'd be offering to pray for me because it's it's dark, it's bleak, it's like it's sad, and it's it's not what we want to hear from messages. That's why it's called the worst sermon ever. But the full title is actually what we can learn from. The worst sermon ever, a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we are nearing the end, I promise you, we are nearing the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. We've gone all through the chapters, verses 1 through 8, and today we're tackling chapter Nine and what we've been doing for the last ten weeks is going chapter by chapter, section by section, sometimes verse by verse, to understand the truths and the meanings, and to be challenged by this actually amazing book. Like after I started this series, a couple of people have been telling me like actually Ecclesiastes is like my favorite book of the Bible, and then I'm like, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? But it's it's been really powerful for me, and a lot of people have been blessed through it. Now. I have to share that uh, as I prepared for this message, it was one of those where I was like, God, what are you doing? You know, like, the past couple of weeks, it's been really cool. Like, God has been doing good things, and I've been like, yeah, I get it. I see the message there. And then I read chapter 9, and I was like, what is the sermon here, God? Like, I don't know what this is. And he, he eventually kind of took me to this thing, and it was very confusing. And then in the end, I was like, oh, This is cool. And I probably never really would have preached about something like this if not for the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I'm excited to share this message. Uh, Let's pray and let's get into it. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, once again for gathering us together in this place to worship, to sing these songs to you, to focus on you, to get out of our minds and our lives, and that we can just come to a place where you draw us out of ourselves. And I pray, God, as we worship and we learn together, you'd speak to us and you'd help us to hear your voice. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, last week, um, Ecclesiastes you know, chapter 8, we focused on this one principle called retribution theology. And retribution theology, if you guys weren't here last week, is essentially the, the, the biblical version of karma. Karma. If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. And so um, I think it's important to clarify, when I say good and bad, we're talking about good and bad as we define them. So health and wealth, money, uh, harvest, lots of kids, long life. These are the things that the ancient Israelites believed, the retribution theology. If I do good, if I do religious things, if I am obedient, then God will bless me with these things. And the flip side was true too. If I do bad things, if I'm unfaithful, if I worship idols, if I do these things, then God will give me curses and I'll suffer and maybe I'll die and I'll have a bad harvest and I'll lose my kids or or whatever, right? So like, there was this idea of retribution theology, which is a long held belief In the ancient Israelite beliefs. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes comes to us in chapter eight and he's like, dude, I don't really know about that. Are you sure? I I don't know if that's really how things work. And so he kind of continues on in chapter eight and concludes the chapter eight part about retribution theology by saying, basically, at the end of the day, like, there's so much that we don't know. Right, like I see all these confusing things where bad things happen to good people and good things to ba- happen to bad people, and at the end of the day, I don't know what, what to make of it, and I'm just so confused. And then he kind of continues that in chapter 9. And so he says this, I reflected on all of this, this retribution theology or lack of retribution theology, this confusion. And he says, uh, I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise what, and what they do are in God's hands but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. What is he saying here? I don't really understand this whole thing. And so the, the righteous and the, the good, they do these things and their lives are in God's hands. So I believe God is in control. Like, don't get me wrong, guys. I believe God is in control, but there's so much that I don't understand. And I don't know if a righteous and good person will receive love or hate. What he's saying here is when I look at their lives, I don't know if they're going to have good things or bad things happen to them. Because remember, I'm not sure if I believe in this whole retribution theology kind of thing. So a good and righteous person, yeah, hopefully they'll get love and not hate, but they may get hate. They may have good things happen to them or bad things. I don't Really? No. I'm just kind of confused. I just feel like this whole one-to-one good, you do good, you get good, I just feel like that doesn't work. And then he says in verse 2, okay, so that's what I don't know in verse 1. Let me tell you what I do know, and then it gets real dark, okay? I'm just going to warn you, it gets real dark. Let me just tell you what I do know for sure, 100%, without a doubt, this is true. In verse 2, all share a common destiny the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil that happens under the sun. What he's saying is everyone, good or bad, righteous or evil, you all will die. That's what he says. I don't know about this whole retribution theology. I don't know about life. I don't know about all that stuff. But here's what I know. Y'all gonna die. And it doesn't matter if you are good. It doesn't matter if you are bad. It doesn't matter if you are righteous or wicked. Everyone shares, and the word he uses here is a common destiny. Everyone dies. And what's interesting is this, this kind of like, this kind of list he gives in, uh, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, where he says that the good and the, uh, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean, unclean, he's really touching on all aspects of moral life, like all parts of it. He says, when he says the wicked, I want you guys to understand, he's not just talking about people who do bad things, right, like people who steal or people who abuse. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about people who just, like, are shady or, or, you know, like, they don't do the right thing. He's not talking about people who order water and then go get Coke. You know what I'm saying? He's not talking about people who don't return their shopping carts to the uh, shopping cart return thing, which you all do that, right? Right? You all do that, and if you don't, you will start this week, all right? Um, he's not talking about people like that who are just, like, kind of questionable and kind of like, mm, I don't know about you. The word used for wicked is also the word used for criminal. He's talking about people who are officially declared with judgment, you are a criminal. And then he's talking about the clean and unclean and the sacrifices, and he's really touching on kind of like the religiosity of it all. Because back in that day, those were the signs of good people. People who made sacrifices, people who brought sacrifices to God, Those who are ceremonially clean, you were good, and if you weren't, you were bad. He's like all kinds of people, whether it comes to their moral decisions, their ethical decisions, their religious and faith decisions, all people. Everyone dies. They all share a common, common destiny. And then he says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. And there's our phrase. We've talked about this so many times under the sun if you're haven't been with us this is a key phrase to understand what he means by what he says when he says something is under the sun he's talking about life separate from god life apart from the kingdom of god life completely without a spiritual perspective and so in this kind of a life where you have no god this is evil and this happens everyone dies this is terrible and then he explains why this is so terrible and I'm like this makes a lot of sense to me he says this same destiny overtakes all. Destiny is death, right? This same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward, they join the dead. I was really confused by this. I was like, what are you you talking about? What he's saying here is that, guys, this is terrible. The fact that everyone, no matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are, you're all just gonna die, this is a terrible thing. And guess what? People are really, really terrible. Some people are really, really terrible. The hearts of people are full of evil. And these super terrible people, they end up in the same place as the good people. And he's like, this is terrible. What kind of arrangement is this? This doesn't make any sense to me. The good should go to somewhere good, and the bad should go somewhere bad. But everyone just dies. Now, Clearly, this man, this teacher, has no concept, no belief, no faith in any form of afterlife, right? You guys, you guys get that, right, from what he's saying here. There's no afterlife in, in his mind right now, for whatever reason. He's not, he doesn't believe in heaven or hell or whatever. It's like, you live and you die, and that's it. That's kind of the mindset he's in. And he's saying, within this mindset, this is really, really terrible. Everyone just dies. And it's not really fair, and it doesn't really make sense to me, because good people and bad people, they're all ending up at the same place. You're born, you go to school, you work, you die, and that's it. And for us, and for those of you who, who consider yourself Christian, a modern Christian in the West, we look at that perspective and we're like, God. Yeah. That's the perspective, that's life without God, and it's sad, and it's bleak, and like, dude, that's, there's no hope in that, right? Like, that's kind of our thing. We think about life without God, and that's it, live and die and done. And our, our response to that is like, oh, no, that sucks. That's so dark, and that's so negative, and how can people live in that kind of situation? Like, there's no hope, there's no meaning, Right? But then listen to what he says in verse 4. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. All right, all of this has been just kind of built up. This is where it gets really interesting. Ecclesiastes 9 4. After this, he said, this is how life is. You live and you die. No matter what happens, no matter what you do, it doesn't matter. Everyone dies. He says, anyone who is among the living has hope. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. So here's what's, what's weird to me. Here's what's, what's strange about Ecclesiastes chapter 9. For us in the West, for us as modern Christians, if you identify as one, you look at a life and a philosophy of life where you're just born, you live, and you die, and we think there's no hope in that. And then he says, if you're alive, there is hope. And this is a really, really important thing for us to understand. Because what he's getting at here, what he's touching, and what he's expressing here is actually a very common understanding in this secular world that we live in. Within the secular mindset, within a secular philosophy of life, you live and you die, and that's it. And this is difficult for us to understand because this is our spiel, isn't it? Like, this is our sales pitch as Christians. Like, hey, You just live, and you die, and that's it, and nothing matters. So here, believe in Jesus, because if you believe in Jesus, then when you die, you will be resurrected, and when he comes, and you will go to heaven, and you'll have eternal life, and it's fantastic, and it's wonderful, streets of gold, pearly gates, like everything, right? And this is our spiel. My version, my understanding of what happens, has so much more hope than what your version is. But the problem is, is that this understanding of heaven and the afterlife, it doesn't work anymore. There's a concept that some of you who are nerds like me know it. It's called Pascal's Wager. Anyone familiar with Pascal's Wager? Okay, cool. Now it can seem smart today. All right. Pascal's wager was this is this idea by his name Pascal. and, And you probably have maybe at some point thought about it. Pascal's wager is, okay. If I live as though there is a God and I'm right, I can go to heaven, awesome. If I live as though there is a God and I'm wrong, then I just die. But if I live as if there is no God and I'm right, then I just die. But if I live as though there is no God and I'm wrong, I go to hell. So what's the smart choice? What's the smart bet in this situation? If I'm wrong about either, I'll just be dead, just like anyone else. But if I'm wrong about God and he is real, then I'm gonna end up in a really bad place. So I might as well just believe in God. That's called Pascal's wager. And for a long time, that made a lot of sense to people. But guess what? In our modern era today, it doesn't work. See, our spiel, our pitch is like, oh, eternal life. Believe in Jesus because then you go to heaven in eternal life. If you share that with some people today, they will say, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. Like, What do you mean you're good? Like, I- I'm fine. I don't really need an afterlife. I don't really need heaven per se, right? Like, I just... I'll just enjoy my life now. I'll just do the best I can around. I'm not going to be a terrible person. I'm going to, like, live a meaningful life now. I'll have friends and family, enjoy food and drink and be merry, all that stuff, like he says in Ecclesiastes. I'm going to do all that stuff, and it's, it's going to be good, and then I'll die, and then that's it. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And so for Christians, it's like, huh? how can you be okay with that? That's so dark and bleak and da-da-da-da. And people are like, mm, I'm fine. I just, like, live in the moment, and just, like, appreciate things, and, and it's gonna be beautiful, it's gonna be good. And some of you guys may have thought that as well. And, and you know, I know this is kind of like an imaginary situation, imma- imaginary person, imaginary conversation, but you have to understand, this is the flow of our secular age. This is a concept and a philosophy that many people subscribe to, and many of you, maybe, are struggling with that, and you wonder, what is the value of God besides, like, heaven? Because, like, this whole thing, like, I'm living for heaven... It's weird, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. And so this, um, this idea we need to wrestle with, Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12, if I were to sum it up in one single word, it's actually really simple. Isaiah 9, 1 through 12, it's really just about this. It's YOLO. That's it. And I don't know why I felt like I had to put YOLO in really big letters, just because, like, that's kind of the vibe, right? And I put the translation in case you didn't know what that meant. YOLO is you only live once. And it's a philosophy of life, right? You only live once. So just do what you love. Do what you want to do. Buy the thing. Go to the place. Be with the person. You only live once. Eat the thing. I know it's late at night, but eat because YOLO, when you, when, you, uh, when, you, when you live life in this way, we call that YOLO. And some of you guys have probably said that before. Maybe you're playing golf and you're like, YOLO, boom, right? And you're like, just do whatever i got to do. This is the idea of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1 through 12. You only live once, everyone dies, so you might as well do this. And he explains kind of his application. His application of YOLO is in verse 7. He says, if YOLO, then go, eat your food with gladness and drink wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. So he said this before, the conclusion of it all, if we all just die, just enjoy life. And just eat, drink, be merry, and just enjoy it. And we talked about kind of like the difference between the under under the sun version of that and the above the sun version of that in a previous message. But what's really interesting is the reason why he says you should do this. The reason why is found in the verses before it. This is what he says. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. So what the living know, what is all the difference for the living, is that they know they're going to die, that it's going to come to an end. Therefore, go, eat, drink, be merry, and do all that stuff. And then he says in verse 20, 10, um, sorry, we have that. And then he says in verse 10, Whatever your hand finds, you, fi- hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge wisdom what is he getting at here if you are alive you know it's all going to come to an end at some point so make the most of your life make the most of what you have now YOLO there's kind of this like foolish part of YOLO where it's like oh I'll just do whatever I want like I don't worry about consequences and a lot of us know that that's foolish and it makes us dismiss it we're like oh YOLO's stupid don't live YOLO that doesn't make any sense but we need to understand that there is a deeper, actually more meaningful aspect, more meaningful teaching in the YOLO philosophy. That's actually kind of like, oh, that makes kind of sense. See, what he's saying here is that because you know that you will die, because you know that there's going to be no work later, do something good now. Make the most of your opportunities. And this is a very popular sentiment in our world today. Right? Enjoy the moment. Not in an irresponsible, selfish kind of way, but be present and know that there's a finality to it all. There's no, there's no second chance. There's no, another, there's no other opportunity, so just do it now. Enjoy it, be productive, and live a good life. And then you die, and then you're done. And again, for the Christian, it's like, wait, no, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. And I'm seeing this thought in actually a lot of different areas now. Like I had a conversation with a 13-year-old, and he kind of asked me this question. And maybe you've asked this question. Hey, if we go to heaven, and heaven is lasts for eternity, don't you think we'll get bored? Right, the fact that it doesn't ever end, doesn't that make everything kind of boring and meaningless? And I bet you wonder that too. And then you're probably like, ah, I guess, I don't know, I don't know, right? But you've probably thought that and wondered that. It's the same question that he's posing. I see this philosophy, this, this view of life in, in television and in media. I see it. There's a show that came out a number of years ago. It's called The Good Place, and they touch on this. And there's a show that, uh, that recently I found out about. It's called, a show called Afterlife, and it's about a man who lost his wife to cancer and about how he grieves and how he deals with life afterwards. And this is let me share a quote from that show that really conveys what I'm talking about. This is from the show, word for word, what he says in the show. He's talking to a girl who is a Christian, and the girl says, how can you not believe in God? How can you not believe in an afterlife? Doesn't that make everything meaningless? And this is his response. Once you realize you're not going to be around forever, I think that's what makes life so magical. One day you'll eat your last meal. One day you'll smell your last flower. Hug your friend for the last very time. For the very last time, you might not know it's your last time, so that's why you should do everything you love with passion. Now, if we're honest, a part of that resonates with you, doesn't it? Something about that is like, yeah, that's kind of good. Like, I kind of like that. I kind of like this idea of, like, living my life with passion. I don't know when it's my last day. I don't know when's the last time I'm going to be with you guys or be with people. And, like, I resonate with that. Like, there's something special about the last thing, you know? Like, for those of you guys who are golfers, the last hole, right? You're like, I got to make this last hole good, right? The last one is important. The last year of high school, when you enter into senior year, some of you guys are there. You're like, man, I'm going to make the most of my senior year because it's my last year. There's something special about the last moments that make you want to take advantage and really appreciate it. But this idea that he's bringing up in Ecclesiastes 9, it's really challenging for us as Christians. Because part of us, and, and maybe you don't, maybe you don't like that, and that's fine. But some of us, like, that's kind of nice, and you kind of appreciate that. But then, does that mean heaven devalues that? Which is, like, weird. How do we, how do we wrestle with that? How do we wrestle with this philosophy of life that is in Ecclesiastes, but in our modern world today that a lot of people believe that almost makes our sales pitch meaningless? Because people just be like, "Ah, I'm fine. I'll just live my life now, and I'll die, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. So here's the question that I want us to struggle with today. What, then, is the role of heaven in the life of faith? What is the role of heaven in the life of someone who's trying to follow Jesus? What is the role of heaven in the life of a disciple, of a Christian, today in today's modern world? What's the role of heaven? And and is the way we've understood heaven and the role that it has played in your life, is it the right way? Is it the proper way? Is it the healthy way to view heaven? Now, I know that seems like a really difficult question, but here's the cool thing. It's actually not that hard to answer. It's actually not that hard to know what the role of heaven for the life of a a follower of Jesus because all we have to do is look at Jesus and see what Jesus said and how Jesus approached the idea of heaven. And so I just want to give you guys three key points about how Jesus approached and taught about heaven. And and I'm, I'm getting really excited, okay? The first thing that you have to understand is that Jesus did not see heaven as a dangling carrot. You know what I mean? Like a car- like a thing in front of you to motivate you to proper behavior. Jesus didn't really do that. Now there are a couple times where he talked about it in a way that kind of looked like it, and it kind of seems like that. And, 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 and if you dig deeper, you find that there's something else going on there. But, but for, for the most part, generally, Jesus never really talked about heaven like, all right this is what you guys want, you guys better get there, so this is what you have to do, this is what you have to stop doing, because if you do that, then one day you'll get to this place. Jesus never approached heaven in that way. It was never this dangling carrot in front of you to change the way you act and to change the way you behave. That's not how he approached heaven. And there's a lot of different reasons I think we can understand that. Why he did that? I mean, because if you think about it, right, if, if heaven is that dangling carrot, and if that's why you do what you do, if that's why you go where you go, if that's why you live your life, if that's why you believe, inherently, it is selfish, is it not? Because it's not about God. It's not about Jesus. It's about what God can give you. It's not about him. And so when we live life as in our minds of heaven as a dangling carrot, that one day I'll just act a certain way and be a certain way, so one day I'll get there, that doesn't lead us to be the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. So Jesus never taught really taught about heaven as like this dangling carrot to influence your behavior. Key point number two. For Jesus, heaven was a present reality, not just a future reality. This is very, very important. For Jesus, heaven was not a place that you will one day go to. Heaven was here and now. We've talked about this. We spent a whole series in this church talking about what the gospel was, the good news. And the good news, as we looked at the teachings of Jesus, was not if you believe in me and give your life to me, when you die, you go to heaven. That wasn't the good news. The good news, the message of Jesus when he said this is the good news in Mark chapter 1, he says the good news is that the kingdom of God is here. So in Jesus' mind, heaven wasn't a location, a destination to one day go to. It was something to engage in and to be be a part of right now, in this moment, in your life. It wasn't necessarily about later. There is a later aspect to heaven, yes. But what Jesus emphasized was the now aspect to heaven. Heaven is here, now, right now. Be in it. Be a part of it. Live in it. Contribute to it. That's how Jesus understood heaven. Not as a place to go to, but for something to be a part of right now and to experience right now. There's a story in John chapter 11 when one of Jesus' closest friends named Lazarus was sick. He was really, really sick. And the t- the, his family were really hoping that Jesus would come because they knew that if he came, he could heal him. And he knew that he could come and, and help him and all that stuff. But Jesus arrives too late, and Lazarus dies. And so Lazarus dies, and then Jesus comes late. And I want you to pay attention to the conversation that Martha, Lazarus' sister, has with Jesus. She says to him in John 11:21, 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's facts. Because Jesus could have saved him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, he listened to Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And then she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. If you had been here, he would have been alive. She says, he will rise again. And Martha says, yeah, I know that in the last days, he will rise again. But for those of you guys who know the conclusion of the story, when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, he was not talking about in thousands of years. Jesus was not talking about the last day. When he says, your brother will rise again, he was talking about like 20 minutes from now. But for Martha, she did not understand that heaven was here, present now. She saw it as something in the future, and that's why she believed, that's why her hope was in something in the future, as a place. When the resurrection happens, I know that everything's going to be good. I know that you can raise him back to life in the last day. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not talking about the last day. I'm talking about right now in this moment. I'm going to raise him up right now. But Martha would never have imagined that. She never would have thought that in that moment, Jesus could do something like that. But for Jesus, heaven was a present reality, not a future one. How many of us believe in what God can do in the future, but forget about what God can do in the present moment? How many of us think God will make this world better? God will change things. Everything's going to be better in heaven. In heaven, we're not going to have all these problems and these issues. What about now? When Jesus talked about heaven, it was not a future destination. It was a present reality. God is moving now in this moment. And when we get stuck on this, like, it's just heaven is just something in the future, we miss, we miss out and we minimize the power of God in the moment today in whatever you're going through. That's powerful, powerful stuff. And here's the last thing that I want to share. My last key point. About how Jesus approached heaven. This is my favorite part. And I'm super excited to share this. I want to go to the most famous verse in the Bible. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3:16. Oh, awesome. Okay. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to ask you a question now and it's going to sound like a trick question. What's the point of John 3.16? What is the main point of John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What is the point of this verse? And let me tell you what's not the point, And I'll share why I believe this. What is not the point of John 3.16 is instructions on how to get to heaven. That is not the point of John 3.16. And I know most of us, including myself, to very recently believe that is the point of John 3:16. That's why people go to sports games and put up John 3:16 signs, because they're hoping someone will see it, look it up and be like, "Oh, that's how you get eternal life. That's how you get to heaven. That's how we understand the main point of John 316. What if I were to tell you that's not the point. John 3:16 is not step-by-step instructions on how to get to heaven. Let me, let, me, let me share with you why I think this. Let's look at the context. What did Jesus say right before this in John chapter 3, verse 13? And then I want you to think about, as I share this verse, what's the point of this verse? John 3, 13 to 15. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the sun, the, the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. What's the point? What's the main focus? What's the main emphasis in John 3, 13 to 15? It's not eternal life and heaven. It's the son of man, is it not? The main point of 13 to 15 is the son of man and how he must be lifted up. That is the main point. So if we're going to be contextually faithful, then we need to apply the context to the next verse. When the context tells us that the point is not heaven and eternal life. It's a part of it. And it is a reality and it's going to be awesome and all that stuff. But in John three thirteen 13 15, the point is Jesus being lifted up. And then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So if instructions on how to get to heaven is not the point of John three sixteen, what it is? If 13 to 15, the point was Jesus being lifted up. Just look. And I know we've, we've heard this verse so many times that we sometimes stop, we don't stop to read it. Let's actually read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What's the point? What's the focus? The love of God. John. The main point of John 3.16 is the love of God, not how to get to heaven. This is powerful stuff, man. When I, when I read this, when I studied this, it blew my mind. That John 3.16 is not this selfish pursuit of how I can secure my place in the afterlife. No, it's about the love of God. That he would be willing to do this, that the love of God is displayed and expressed and seen and revealed in this action where Jesus lays down his life and is raised up on a cross, and through that we have eternal life. That is true, but that's not the point. The point is the love of the Father, the love of God. And that's amazing to me. And I love how the New Living Translation puts this. They're they're, they're like, I feel like they write it in a way that it's faithful to kind of what the point is. It says, for this is how God loved the world, colon. I've never loved the colon so much. This is how God loved the world, colon. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him not perish, will not perish, but have eternal life. So here's key point number three, the way Jesus viewed heaven and in turn how we as Christians followers need to view heaven as well. Heaven is not a goal, heaven is a sign. Heaven is not a goal, it is not a destination, it is a sign. So what does the sign point to? What does the sign reveal? The sign points to a heavenly God, a heavenly Father who loves you unconditionally, Heaven is not a goal or destination. It is a sign that we have a God who loves us and was willing to sacrifice his own son for us. Isn't that awesome? Heaven's not a goal, man. Heaven is a sign of the God that we believe in, the God that we worship. And yes, it's true. Yes, it is a reality. I believe in all that stuff. I believe it's going to be amazing and wonderful. But what's most beautiful about heaven is not the streets of gold or the pearly gates or the mansion. What's most beautiful heaven is the Father, the God behind it all. And that's what I'm realizing about this whole idea of heaven. Yes, it is going to be awesome. But the God behind it all is even more awesome. And his love for you is even more awesome and amazing. Heaven is a sign that there is a God who has immeasurable love for you. You know, to be honest, I don't need a dangling carrot in my life. And if you're honest, I don't think you want that either. I don't think you want a carrot in front of you where God puts that out in front of you and says, all right, just make sure you act good, make sure you just do the right thing, and then you'll make it. Here, here's how you do it, here's how you get there, and you've got to wait until you die to get there. I, I don't think we need that. I think when anyone else in the world does that to you, you question them, and you suspect them. And we don't like it when people manipulate us like that. I don't need that. I don't think you'd need that. But I will tell you, I need the unconditional love of God every single day. I need that. I don't need a dangling carrot, but I need the love of God. And that's what heaven is really about. It's not this wonderful place for us to work towards to get to. It's a sign of the love of God. Just like how the cross is a sign of the love of God. This, like, this message just kind of like blew my mind. This, this idea blew my mind. And it's, it's really forcing me to change the way I think about things. Heaven is not a goal. It is a sign. That is what heaven is about. That is what this afterlife is about. And that is why we have great hope. Not because there's some mysterious place that we'll get to one day. But because there is a God in heaven who loves you right now, in this moment, in your deepest, darkest moments, he loves you unconditionally. That's hope. And that is amazing. And so I hope that I've challenged you today. I hope that the word has challenged you today to think about things a little bit differently. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, I thank you so much you reveal things to us and you teach us things, Lord, and, and, and gosh, John three sixteen, like that's something we all knew. That's something that I knew and I've talked about and preached about and studied all these years of my life, but this week, God, you blew my mind, so I just thank you for that. And I hope, God, that, that as we look at our lives, as we think about the role of heaven in, in, in the life of a follower of Jesus, let us realize, God, that you're not trying to manipulate us No, you've shown us and and given us the the truth of the reality of heaven, not to manipulate us into being a certain way or doing certain things, but you've shown us that because you want to show us how much you love us. Thank you, God. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.